Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, The woman you gave to, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For you are dust, and you will return to dust. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God had made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed the cherubim and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Uh, here's the thing, right? As, at this particular passage of scripture, I'm just like, to say anything about it feels like it just dilutes it, right? Like, uh, there's just so much here. As we've said the last couple of weeks, I'm obviously going to attempt to say something about it, but uh, as we said the last couple of weeks, there's just, there's just so much here. The scope is cosmic, and uh, it's just so big that to talk about it at all is to diminish it, right? Feels, feels like, anyway, it's to just lessen it. 
uh, a little bit. I mean, I mean, we 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 bump into all kinds of incredible things here, right? You got you got crafty, wily serpents. We're not told where he's from. How did he get there? We want to ask all of those kinds of questions. Uh, but that's not the point of the story. We don't get that. We get a crafty uh, member of God's creation, which the writer points out. He is created. He's a part of the creation. He comes in and speaks a bit of, you know, wiliness. We get, we get God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Uh, to say anything else about that to me just uh, will make it less. Right? What what. What is a world like, we talked about last week, with no shame, and in which God walks in the garden in the cool of the day? And, and, then, and then we get the cherubim with the flaming sword, right? Uh, lest we sort of live in this, you know, it's an abrasive, like, uh, here is this. Uh, over the break, we were listening to uh, Madeline Lingle's A Wrinkle in Time with my kids, a little science fiction-y space. And in one of the books, she tries to describe like a cherubim, and it's terrifying, right? It's many-eyed and lots of wings. It's this artistic sort of depiction that is, on the one hand, sort of uh, awesome and terrifying, and yet somehow safe enough for children, right? It's uh, weird, right? And yet here in this moment, you know, we, we, we get what, whatever that sort of thing is, the, the cherubim uh, here. It, it's, there's just a lot here. A lot of things we could choose to talk about. A lot of things that we often want to chase down. And again, I'm not saying they're not without merit, but we're not going to chase all those. I'm not going to answer all of your Genesis 3 questions this morning, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I didn't answer your Genesis 2 questions, nor your Genesis 1 questions. So I just want to stay consistent. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to answer all those questions for you. But I, I am going to ask you to hear it as an overture, and I just want to draw your attention to the melodies that this story, uh, you know, forces us to confront that oftentimes we don't want to, um, or that when we do, sometimes they're overwhelming, right? Either we want to say they're not there, or we'll admit they're there, and, 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 and it's a despairingly overwhelming sort of tune. Uh, I just want us to hear these themes this morning. And the first one is a natural one, right? Like, uh, I just can hear like... I, again, uh, is sin, sin, there, I said it, right? Uh, here in the beginning, right, this move in the story. Things have been beautiful. Like, as we've heard Genesis 1 and 2 read, it's been beautiful. God and his creation, there was no shame. I mean, it's this, the, the, chapter 3 almost hits us abrasively. It's like a, it catches our attention. Like, wait a second, this, there's been all of this context of beauty and God at the center working life and goodness. And now, very quickly, things have like unraveled. Uh, there's a turning away from uh, that goodness, the source of that goodness. Sin is the word we use, right? It's the sort of $10 it's only three letters, but it has, you know, a lot of reach. We hear it here, the serpent, he's crafty, right? He, he uses a bit of exaggeration. First, he just sort of makes a suggestion, then some exaggeration. And, uh, you know, Eve interestingly responds with an exaggeration of, of her own, right? She's like, we can't even touch it. And as we've heard the story, that wasn't a part of the story. And this is a conversation for another day, but I wonder, like, does this say something about the human sort of capacity to exaggerate the strictness of God in this moment, right? She like counters with something that's equally not entirely true, at least if 
as the story has been given to us, but here the serpent sort of draws, draws them away from the world in which God had invited them to trust that he was the source of good, that he was the one who, who would define and create uh, and mark what is good. And, and they were simply invited to trust him, right? And here now they're sort of pulled into a different conversation to, to, to maybe reach for that them, themselves, that in this moment, the serpent, right, like at this moment of sin, the sort of first theme we're going to hear over and over and over and over again in the rest of the movements of uh, life in our own lives, right, that there's this movement away from trusting God. And now, as the story is told, God becomes the rival, right? He's the, he's the one we're kind of working against. We want to define goodness separate from, apart from, on our own terms, uh, from him. He now is the rival in the story, at least as our hearts are concerned. I, I, I do think, I'm going to circle back to this, but I do think that, uh, you know, we rightly label this section of the story the fall, right? This is the fall, and you'll see that in headings in scripture. It's how we talk about, how we talk about it, but interestingly, that, that's really not what happens, right? They they, they like, they're reaching up. They're, they're climbing in this section of the story, right? They, they are saying like uh, in this moment they've been enticed to sort of jettison whatever God's intentions were and to kind of like climb themselves. We, we can know and reach for what is good and right and whole. We, we think we can actually, you know, with enlightened eyes, kind of make that happen. Like we, we've, We've got this. There's a, there's a climbing here, an, an, an ascent, a reaching up, a clamoring uh, up for more. And this is the first sort of theme, and it will play out again and again and again and again on the pages of Scripture and in the pages of our hearts and lives as well. I, we could talk more at length. We could dig into the particulars, but I do think this is a space we, we know. We also know the second sort of theme of, of this uh, story, the consequences, right? Judgment is a word we use, right? There's sin and there's consequences here in this story. That there's the move in us that we are prone to like turn away from God. And then the sort of cascading consequences of that move in us. I, I think it's, it's, it's worth noting or it's interesting. Again, uh, I'm not saying all there is to say. I'm just really making some general observations around a theme, an overture, if you will. Um, but it's interesting that a bit of what the serpent says is, is true, right? Your eyes will be opened, and, and you, you will see things differently. What happens, the consequence of that is like, well, yes, that happens, and it's, it's much more than they bargained for. Right, to kind of now see good and evil in a way all that they knew previously was good. God is the source of good, the giver, the one in whom they could lean and trust. Well, well now they sort of, we, we can sort of achieve more, so they climb up and they take some fruit. And, and now in this moment, and in some sense, yes, their eyes are open, but one, one author describes it as a kind of gross anticlimax to the promised dream of enlightenment. Right now they, they do see things, lots of things, in ways they weren't prepared for. And the natural first fruit of, of that move, the, the first of the cascading consequences that will follow from this theme is shame, as we heard and thought about last week. And it will trickle into every aspect of their human existence. 
It'll disrupt and dissolve the union that we've seen described between Adam and Eve, right? Where it should have been love and cherish, now it's desire and dominate will sort of characterize the nature of that relationship. Mistrust and passions will govern the way humans, Adam and Eve, and, and, and their progeny, it's how they will relate to one another, and it will disrupt and ravage not only the sort of quiet, beautiful, Edenic existence of their own life, but, but societies that will follow from them because now introduced is this mistrust and shame. It'll disrupt their relationship with God. Not a surprise, right? I think sometimes I read that last verse, there's an angel, a cherubim. If it's like Madeline Lingle's artist of the particular book I had, it's a terrifying image. I tend to think of like a precious moments angel there, you know, like, no, 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 please come back another day, right? Uh, you know, I don't know. Or it's like a, we kind of read it as like a cosmic sort of God saying like, well, if you're not going to play the game my way, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home, right? Like that's how it comes across sometimes. But, but I don't think that's really the move here. It's a statement that, that they will not get back uh, by this road, right? That, that this isn't, this isn't you, you can't sort of undo what you have done. In fact, that moment when they, it was, it's not the angel at the garden that's the problem. It's, it's, it's the moment they started to clamor and climb. And, and, and that once, once they sort of went to reach for that fruit, they were already three steps down the path towards the exit. Right, the turn, the move had already happened in the story. This is, a, this is a, you might say, a, a moment of clarity where you're not going to come back by this way. You can't just undo not just their sort of return to relationship with God, but then, you know, as Megan read for us, the description of creation. Where once Adam and Eve is God's creation, creatures within his creation, though breathed with his image, commissioned into this creation to work and care, now they're sort of going to cast that off in this moment of, 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 of clamoring and climbing. So now creation, you get the sense, feels leaderless, right? The ones sort of designated to lead and care for are now sort of charting their own course. And so naturally the choir of creation can only sort of grind on in discord and brokenness. Themes the New Testament will pick up later. These are things you know, right? Like we, we, we are prone to turn away, to move away from God, and there are cascading consequences of those moves in our lives, and we see it here at the very beginning. But how do we like feel it or, or know it? I don't know. I, I, Frankenstein is helpful, right? Frankenstein, anyone? Do you guys remember the Frankenstein story where, you know, the guy's going to like create, right? It's like sort of I read it. It was, we got to choose a book to write a book report on. It was like 10th or 11th grade. And uh, I'm sure at the time I didn't understand, you know, I, it was just a fun monster, right? And all of the sort of nuance and layers of meaning were lost on me. But I do think it sort of launched a bit of a science fiction interest in my life. And, uh, but, you know, you know the story of Frankenstein, this kind of man-made creation, this, this, this overreach, and things quickly go awry. Whatever else is happening in the story, uh, Shelley, I think, gives us, it's been described, gives us in this moment a sense and an expression of the tragic consequences of the stubborn human failure to accept our frailties and our fallen nature. It still resonates, right? That's a move that's happening here. 
uh, our, our propensity to kind of turn away and then all of this sort of reverberating kind of echoes of that theme. G.K. Chesterton, a Catholic writer, wrote lots of fun stuff and wrote some theology. Uh, He says this, the answer to the question, what is wrong, right? What is wrong is or should be, I am wrong. I am wrong. It's, again, just a way into, I think, the themes we hear in this story. It's, It's, I think, an appropriate time to be reading a story like this. This season in the life of the church that's uh, in some streams of the church is called Lent, a season of repentance as we prepare for Easter. It's, it's a moment where we're drawn into this piece of the story that we would rather forget, right? That we work so hard in our lives to sort of suppress or deny or cover over. Uh, it, it, Lent draws us into an admission that this bit of the story is true. It's true then, and it's true now in my life. True. A recognition, as uh, uh, one author heard describe it, it's like, a, um, it's, it's like a limp that we just get used to walking with. We try our best to kind of navigate around it. We are prone to turn away. And that decision has just a cascade of consequences in our lives, and they're all over the pages of this story. We haven't considered all of them. Uh, Fleming Rutledge is a, I think she's an Episcopal priest. She has written a bit about sort of this moment in the story that has been helpful for me. She described it like the prospect of a verdict in this scenario, it looms like an ogre. Like it's, like an, it's like an ogre over uh, the space in our lives, this acknowledgement of consequence. I'll give you one more example and then I'll move on. T.S. Eliot, poet, playwright, describes it like this, that half of the harm that's done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them or they do not see it or they justify it because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves all of these different ways of pulling us into the story that we read in Genesis 3, right? That, that we are prone to turn away from God and there are consequences, but our sort of, uh, our human response to that is to deny it or reject it or cover it up or hide it, all those kinds of things. Uh, let me, uh, I don't know, let me give you a, a rather, uh, what's the word? I don't know. Uh, innocent example. We we were on a spring break trip this week. We took Jess and the girls took a little trip, and we were staying at a farm in rural Missouri that didn't have cell phone reception. Right, and uh, you could get it on the property, but you had to go somewhere else, which <laughs> too much work. Right, so uh, which was great fun. We had a lovely time. We was you know we played games and. Uh, we were doing like little house on the prairie sort of stops, and so this place we were staying for a few nights was, it was just you know it was nice, and I was enjoying it. Um, it was idyllic, it was beautiful, uh, and lovely until one of my children, we, we, we were gonna we were gonna sort of travel to one more stop on the trip, and we were packing up the last day at this particular farm to make our way to somewhere else. And one of my children says to me, man, I hope the next place doesn't have the internet so you won't be on your phone, right? I know, you feel my wrath. I was like, you punk, right? <laughs> Put the suitcase in the car, right? Are you kidding me? And uh, 
you know, ordinarily, ordinarily, I would have been like, yeah, 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 whatever. And, you know, I got on my phone and looked at ESPN, right? Uh, but uh, I couldn't do that because we didn't have the internet. So uh, I said, I'm going to take out the trash and walked up the hill so I could get on my phone then, right? Um, right, like ordinarily, I think I, I just would have let it slide. But for whatever reason, it bothered me. It, it, it bugged me. And maybe it's because I, I was like, we just had days of like, you had all of my attention. We played games. I am not on my phone. I mean, and I, I responded. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I think I'm getting, I think, wait, wait. I think this, you are not calculating the score sheet properly. And I responded because it bothered me. I, I even, I kept on going I, to Jess privately. I was like, what, what's up, man? Right? Like, I'm like, you're on your phone, right? <laughs> like, you know, like that's, I, I, I felt all of that. Like, man, these, they have unrealistic expectations, right? Come on, give me a break. Really, really what was going on is in that moment, I think Genesis 3 was kind of rearing its head in a really innocent way in my life. But I think scarily sort of indicative of maybe deeper things, I, I needed them to know that I was a good dad and I wanted to think well of myself and they should think well of me too, like a big, ugly ogre, a troll, maybe, under a deeply insignificant and small bridge. Genesis 3 just kind of crept up on me in that moment. My compulsive need for everyone around me and myself to be innocent. This story cannot be true of me. Uh, uh, this is a, I don't know if you call it, what, I don't know what the genre of music is, the Ar Arcadian Wild, the mandolins and stuff. And they've, they've written a sort of a, a, a several movements of song where they try to tell the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 uh, creatively. And in it, they make this observation. I looked from left to right for somebody to blame. I believed a viper, and I grew a pair of fangs. And in a sort of very innocuous way, that little drama, the story of Genesis 3, played out around this dumb little conversation around phones in my life because it struck a nerve. And I wanted to pull Jess down. I, I wanted to respond defensively because I don't want to believe this bit of the story. I don't want this to be true. I don't want it to be true of me. If it's got to be true of anyone, I hope it's true of you and not me, right? That's, that's the approach, right? That's the move. That's the move that everyone in the story makes. Like, it was like this way, right? Like everyone's like, wait, wait, wait. This can be true, just not of me. How about over here, right? Like, uh, and, and, but he, here's, uh, you know, these are themes we hear, sin and its consequences. And I think oftentimes that's where we stop in this story. That, that's what we think the story is about, I mean, it ends with a, you know, blazing sword-wielding angel at the gate of the garden. You're like, this is obviously, this, these are the major themes in the story. And I want to suggest to you this morning that there's one more theme that I think reverberates uh, in, in this section of the story and throughout that is worthy of our attention. And that's grace. Sin is true, yes. Consequence is true, yes. We are prone to turn away from God, even with all of its cascading consequences. But the remarkable truth of this story is that even there, e even there, God in his grace continues to move toward us. Right? The, the, of all the things we could chase down, the truth in this story is that even though, even though we are hell-bent on, on turning away from, from God, 
right? And, 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 and doing whatever we can to survive sort of the consequences. In, in this moment, we're, we're confronted with another theme that reverberates over the pages of Scripture that even there, God in His grace continues to move toward us. I think you hear it a few ways in the passage, like the sound of His presence in the garden. I don't know, man. It's, it's, that, that's what catches Adam's attention. The God comes and walks in the garden in the cool of the day, and they said it's the sound. It's almost like, like God on the wind. I don't know what that sounds like in your life, but just the fact that he comes to us at all in this space is a gracious move. And then the way he interacts, right, in this moment, his first move towards Adam it isn't accusation. It isn't a cajoling sort of where, get out here, right? Let's, it's, 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 a, it's a gracious, kind question. Where, where are you? Where are you? Let's, let's have a conversation. Where, where are you? One, one uh, New Testament scholar describes this kind of having all the marks of grace. Where are you? And then, I mean, there's so many things we could, we could point out. But in verse 15, the uh, New Testament, uh, Christian scholars throughout history have pointed to this verse as the kind of first announcement of the gospel, the good news. And in all of the stories, it happens way back here, this promise that, that, that one would come, a seed would come who would crush the head of the serpent and whose heel would be bruised. A gracious word that, that the human story will go forward despite all of the ravaging brokenness that, that will be experienced as a result of these first two themes. The human story will go on. Even like towards the end, right? It's, this, it's interesting that and this is the moment in the story where Eve is named. It's called Eve, the mother of the living Right, a, a gracious word of promise that the story, despite the failure we've experienced at this point, the story is not over. God graciously moving toward Adam and Eve and toward you and me today. And then it tells us that he clothed them. I love the move. It seems like a natural response, right? Their eyes are open. They kind of see things differently. Than, I mean, it's a, it's a legitimate natural response. It's a shame. So they do what they can. They grab some fig leaves like, all right, like I, I, I'm seeing just all sorts of things that, that, and differently. And, and so, uh, you know, they, they attempt to cover up and God comes in and exposes that move. It's like weak and somewhat pathetic, but he doesn't sort of condemn them or judge them. In this moment, he, he graciously provides something better. And he covers them. He covers them. It's a word of grace and it's not just the story of the beginning. It's your story and mine as well. I heard the sound of you, Adam said, and I was afraid. I was naked and I hid. Those are moves we know. Those are moves we know. And we think that's where the story ends. But those are not all the themes that play out. There is the gracious promise that even though, we, even though we are prone to turn away, our hearts bent on reaching for whatever we, we can and all the consequences of that, that even in that moment, God comes to us. We were, um, we were visiting the Little House homes this week, and uh, we were in uh, Mansfield where you can visit the home where they lived, 
and then sort of uh, another home that their daughter built on the property where they were supposed to retire to. It was too modern, I guess. They went back to the little farmhouse on the grounds, but it's where she wrote some of the first books. But we were in the tour. There's a group of us, and with my family, and there's others, and we're, we're in there, and the lady, the docent, tells us, points out a book that was written by their daughter, Rose, who was an accomplished, I didn't know this, author in her own right, and uh, achieved great success, such financial success. She pointed out one particular book, said this made like $10,000, or there was a dollar amount, I can't remember what it was and she made some joke like because out of that she like built the retirement home for her parents she was like all right kids you know you guys better I was like yeah 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 um (laughs) so then we like we went to the next house we kind of left that space and went to the next one the home that that book built and uh the, the docent is like talking and, and she makes reference to that same story. And so I lean forward and whisper uh, into the ear of the person in front of me, better get to work on that novel. And just turns around and looks at me. He's like, why are you whispering in the ear of that stranger? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She wasn't my daughter. She was someone's daughter. But uh, I know. You guys are like, I don't know how you're even here today, Matt. It's, it was a struggle, right? Uh, thankfully, there was still loads of tour. We got to spend lots of time together uh, after that. It was terribly awkward. And uh, I think sort of has lots of traction with the story that we've read this morning. Like maybe we're not where we think we are. But uh, I, do think, I do think we hear Genesis 3. And the serpent is just as crafty and he whispers to you, you better get to And you come into this story and this community well aware of the brokenness of Genesis 3. And uh, all you hear is, it's how people perceive the church. You better get to work on that. Now, honestly, I think to hear it that way is just to not hear the story at all, really. Because if it's just about a fall, right, if it's just, if that's the story, then really the story going forward for you and me is like, well, then just tell me what I got to do to get up, right? Like, just let me do what I can. I'll climb back up. I'll get back to the person I ought to be and should be. Just tell me what I need to do to get back into the game, right? If, if it's just about fall, then really the rest of the story is about me climbing back to whatever I ought to be. And we love that kind of story, right? Even if we're bad at it, it's a story we know. All of culture tells us, our culture anyway, tells us that story. We like that kind of story. We can work with it. We can at least make something happen. It's exactly the kind of bootstrappy story that we can get behind. Whether we succeed or fail at it, it it just makes sense to us. But that's not the whole story here. It's not about your ability to get back up. You can't go back the way you came. Right? If that's what the story is about, well, then the gospel story becomes a fertile ground for all kinds of things like self-righteousness or self-loathing or contempt for our own failures and others. It becomes fertile ground. It's, it's really just reaching for the same old apple. Right? Here's what you got to do to get back up. But Genesis 3 tells it a different story. You can't go back that way. You can't. There are consequences, but that is not the end. Though you are uh, 
have turned, though we are prone to turn away with all of the consequences that follows God and his grace continues to move toward you and me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's what we celebrate in communion. We're going to eat together this morning. It's that move that all we bring to the table, right, all we all we bring to the table is what we find in Genesis 3. And we can try our best to sort of like earn our spot there. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church Podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.